I want to kind of go quickly into the text today. We've been doing a series, and this is the third in the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is really important to the church. This year it marks 500 years of what has been traditionally known as the Reformation of the church. And this book um, was quite central in a lot of the thinking that came up there in trying to take the church back to, to faithfulness um, at a very dark time. So um, let me start with this. I don't know how you are at your most angry, your angriest. I don't know what kind of unchristian virtues you begin to exhibit. Perhaps a loss of curtsy, a loss of patience, maybe some insults of the people that have you know, angered you, or maybe even some ill will towards the same people. Cheer up, you're in good company with Paul the Apostle in this letter. Now, in terms of courtesy, well, Paul dispensed with his usual pleasantries that he would normally give in the beginning at the end of the letter with this one. Um, in terms of patience, we see in 2 verse 5 that he did not give, he had no patience with those who were trying to peddle a message. He didn't give them any chance to, to have a platform to, to preach. And in terms of insults, well, in 3 verse 1, he brazenly calls the Galatians very foolish people. And when it comes to ill will towards his opponents, well, he kindly wishes that they would emasculate themselves in 5 verse 12. It's, I think it's fair to say that he did not have a happy sing-along song on his iPhone when he was writing this letter. Now, so was his anger out of order? That's the question. Well, it depends. You see, anger is not wrong necessarily if rightly placed. What do I mean by that? If you hear the news about sex trafficking and you are angry, that's right. If you become angry because your football team has lost, that's wrong. You see, the latter is misplaced and the former is well placed. Why? Because the appropriateness of anger is correlated with the value of what is being tampered with. In the case of sex trafficking, it's human dignity. With the case of your football team losing, it's human pleasure. And human dignity always trumps human pleasure. In Paul's case, the letter, to, um, the letter to the Galatians is written out of righteous anger. Why? Because he's witnessing the tampering of what he considers to be God's most precious gift to mankind. And that is the gift of his son through the message of the gospel. You see, certain folks had infiltrated the church with a different message, one totally fundamentally different from the one that Paul had been preaching. And while they were doing this, they were also trying to discredit Paul along the way. They were trying to question his credibility uh, by trying to deny that his message was congruent with the one that was being preached by the real apostles in their regard, the real apostles in Jerusalem. So last week, Paul, we started to see how Paul was um, at pains to show somehow his connection or his history, from his history of conversion to how it also been connected with the people at Jerusalem. So this week, we go into the second part of that. We continue with that personal history. And I want us to look at this message under three headings. One is gospel authentication for unity. Gospel authentication for unity. The second is gospel preservation for liberty gospel preservation for liberty. And then the third is gospel demonstration for credibility. Gospel demonstration for credibility. 
So let's start with the first one. So if we look at the text in verse 1, it says, it starts with this, that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Now, it's again, because in the previous chapter, towards the end, after three years, three years after his conversion, he went to Jerusalem. That time, he met privately with Peter. He saw James. He spent about two weeks with Peter, but he saw James very briefly. So this was the second time that he was going to Jerusalem, 14 years after his conversion. Now, the reference most likely is found in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch was where Paul was based. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, that's the disciples in Antioch, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. That's the region where Jerusalem is. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So when he says that, in back to our, our, our text, that I went again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, this most likely is the reference. Now, very quickly, why is Paul trying to speak so much about this whole issue of his connection with the Jerusalem church? And he's going to do two things. He's going to walk a very tight tension. On the one hand, um, oh, well, let, let me back up. Jerusalem was where the church really began. When Jesus died and rose again, just before he ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples that they should wait in Jerusalem, where he was going to send the, power, uh, the Holy Spirit in power, and then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, the next, and then the uttermost parts of the world. And this exactly happened in Acts chapter 2. This was the birthing of the church. But the apostles that Jesus had commissioned in his earthly ministry were based in Jerusalem. So this was the foundation. This was the, um, the very center of where the church began. Now, the guys who are infiltrating the church are questioning Paul's own connection to those guys. And so Paul is trying, by associating himself with the Jerusalem church, trying to show that he's not gone astray. Now, but in the previous um, um, account in, in chapter 1, he somewhat dis distances himself from them. Why is he doing this? Because if you see the opening chapter... Verse one, chapter 1, verses 1, he said that he's not an apostle who has been commissioned by men. On the one hand, he's distancing himself because truly he was commissioned by the risen Christ. Slightly different from the other guys, but nonetheless, he was commissioned by Christ. But at the same time, he knows that he doesn't want to show too much of a distance. And so when you get to chapter 2 now, he's going to start talking more about his connection. The other time he only spent two weeks with Peter and didn't meet with the other apostles. But here it says in verse 2, I went in response to Revelation, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. And he did what? He presented the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. So Paul is presenting, is as it were, laying what he preached to them. Now, why is he doing this? The church is at its infancy. And at first starts, and it's spreading around Jerusalem. And mainly it starts with Jews. Now, on the, on, in Antioch, in Syria, 
it starts to flourish among Gentiles. In fact, it flourishes so much that it says that Christians were first called that name in Antioch, where Paul was. Now, but these are people that are ethnically different from Jews. These guys who infiltrated the church thought that, well, if we're seeing this kind of diversity, we don't want to be, too, we don't want to be taken so much away from our roots. Therefore, the best thing is, even though these Gentiles accept Christ, it's important for them to be very close to the roots, to also have some kind of Jewishness. They should be circumcised. Now, it's in this regard that Paul is saying that he's laying down the message that he preached before the apostles. Now, let's be careful. Paul is not seeking permission concerning the message that he preached with the apostles. No, what is Paul doing? As we see in verse 9, he says that James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. What is Paul seeking? Well, Paul is seeking recognition through authentication for the purpose of unity. He's seeking recognition through authentication for the purpose of unity. Now notice, he is preaching to the uncircumcised, the others are preaching to the circumcised. In other words, this diversity begins to show. Now one of the things that we find very difficult, you and I, is how we maintain unity in diversity. Now in case you've not noticed, I'm a man. And I happen to be married to a woman. Now, over the years, I've been married for seven years, there's a question that has bugged me for such a long time. I'm still trying to figure this out. And what is that question? Is this, what exactly do women want? <laughs> I don't know, some of us here are married. I mean, you know, do you, want, um, do you want the sheets to be over you or you don't want it to be over you? Do you want your plates put in this place or you don't want your plates put in that place? Do you want to be complimented or you don't want to be complimented? Do you want that dress that you think is nice or you actually don't want that dress that is nice? What exactly do women want? And it doesn't help when, you know, you probably don't do the right thing. And you say, well, what do you want? And you say, well, you should know what I want. Well, that's why I'm asking. Seven years, and that still hasn't changed. Now, what's going on there? I'm a man. Physiologically, there's a difference between men and women. Psychologically as well, there is a difference between us. And yet, at the same time, we're both human beings. In the case of my wife, we're united through the love and the vows that we've confessed to one another. We are united on the one hand, we are diverse on the other hand, and yet we have to strive for unity. In the case that we find here, we have the Jews that are circumcised, uh, the Christians that are circumcised Jews, and the Christians who are Gentiles. How do they unite, even though they are quite different in many things? In this most diverse city in the United States, how is it that people who call upon the name of Christ will be able to unite? Well, we have the clue here. You see, what's going on is that the other guys who think that the best way for us to be united is through the Gentiles becoming more Jewish, Paul and the other apostles are saying, no, that's not the case. These guys don't need to be circumcised. And Paul is showing his history with the Jerusalem apostles. 
he's charting that history to show that what he's saying, that they don't need to be circumcised, is the same thing that the Jerusalem apostles were saying. How do we know? He took Titus along, verse, verse 1. And in verse 3, he says, yet, I took Titus along to Jerusalem, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. You see, unity is very hard. But unity in diversity, though hard, when achieved or when demonstrated, is a beautiful thing. How do you know? Well, for instance, consider the fact that you have an African, partly educated in Europe, speaking to Americans. And not just speaking to any kind of Americans, he's speaking to Southern Americans. Now, that's a thought. You see, what, one of the things that the guys were trying to achieve here, in some regard, they were feeling the tension of diversity. That's the false teachers. And they're wondering, how do we achieve it? Well, they went to what was most comfortable for them. Whereas there is a different way, and we're presented with that in this part. Now, I'm going to do something. Let me experiment with you guys. I want you to indulge the African guy that is here. I'm going to ask you to say something, and all you have to do is you respond in unison, all right? So say with me, content is king, and context is queen. I can assure you the pastors didn't think that was going to work. But anyway, in our diverse city, diversity of Houston here, There are far too many options parading themselves as gospels. And they come out of very genuine motives. You see, it goes something like this. We have these diverse number of people. How are we going to unite? So, for instance, how will we reach the Africans in our our city? How will we reach the teenagers in 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 our church? How will we reach the poor? How will we reach the socially marginalized? How will we reach the LGBTQI? You see, many, unfortunately, decide to, to, in order to do this, to make content queen and context king. In other words, let us have different messages for different contexts. And Jesus himself was faced with two different kinds of people in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Just the same, uh, one chapter after each other. It was a guy called Nicodemus. And a woman, we don't even know her name, a woman at the well. Now, these were two very different people. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. Nicodemus was old. She was younger. Nicodemus was rich. She was poor. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was politically powerful. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. She was politically impoverished. You couldn't find two more different people in different contexts. And Jesus speaks to both of them because they're different people. He's not going to speak to them in the same way. And because they're different people, their brokenness is not also expressed in the same way. Nicodemus came with an intellectual brokenness. The woman at the well came with a brokenness that was expressed in satisfaction. She thought she could find that in romantic love. She got married five times. She gave up on marriage but continued with romance. And now the person she was living with was not her husband. Now, in both cases, Jesus did not give them different messages. He spoke to them differently, but he gave them the same message, which was himself. And in the same way, in our varied context, we are not expected to say the same, uh, we're not expected to speak the same way, 
but we're expected to give the same message. I'm saying as Christians that we must be intentional about reading our context, but we must be ruthless about our content as well. The content is the gospel. What Jesus has done, the person, both the person and Jesus, what he has done. Let me give you one definition of the gospel. Because it's news, it's a statement, and a statement can be summarized this way. It is the good news that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, is now Lord and impending judge of the world. If you want to really understand what those things mean, ask your pastors. Now, a more extended definition, which shows the... Um, impact of what Jesus has done on people and the timing um, that this will be rolled out is this. What God, this is a bit longer, I must warn, what God has lovingly, graciously, and decisively accomplished in and through the person of his incarnate son, Jesus Christ. To do what? To reconcile rebellious sinners to himself, giving them new life in the Holy Spirit, defeating the cosmic powers of evil, Establishing a new community of love with the promise of fully restoring the created order. This was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, is being administered through his heavenly reign, and will finally be consummated in his impending return. That's the three phases of what Christ has done. His first coming, his death and resurrection, so that when we put our trust in him, we are given a new status and we're given the spirit. And now he's ascended and he's administering his reign, he keeps pouring out his spirit to people and people keep believing. And then in his impending return, he will give us our resurrected bodies and he will recreate this whole world. We must be ruthless about our content whilst we are intentional about our context. And Paul was showing, just as Jesus would echo in his prayer before he goes to the cross, that the one way we can show this unity whilst we have varying contexts, is through the message of the gospel. See what Jesus says in John 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. That's not for the disciples that were with him alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus was talking about an intergenerational unity. And how was, it going to be, uh, how was that going to be achieved? through the same message that the apostles will preach. That they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So, but Paul is doing more than authenticating the message for unity. He's also preserving it for liberty. Second point. Now, if you notice, uh, if we read verses 3 and 4, there's an altercation that has come up precisely because of the ethnicity of Titus. He is Greek. And because of that, some guys are challenging um, Paul about this ethnicity. And Paul says he did not give these people any space. He did not give them any moment for them to peddle their message because he wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel, verse 5. Now, what's the, good, the truth of the gospel he was talking about? Well, the truth of the gospel's sufficiency to unite Jews and Gentiles under one body without the need of any extras apart from faith in Christ. 
A lot more of that will be said about that next week as we look at 11, verses 11 to 14. But can I say this? That there is a role that leaders of the church must play in defending the gospel from outside threats. And there are so many threats. In our context, the biggest threat that we have is a taking of the message of the gospel and saying that through it, right now, if you have faith, you can have a wealthy bank account, um, health all the days of your life. I mean, it's a very, very insidious message, but it is right now the de facto face of Christianity in our context. But I digress. Sometimes when the leaders have to defend this, it may be seen as unloving, unnecessarily combative, or even divisive. Why do we want to divide the church? But actually, when you go out away from the one uniting message, it is precisely those who are dividing the church. Now, to be sure, Paul is not advocating nastiness or shutting down of conversation. It was in the context of the pulpit that he prescribes zero tolerance, zero tolerance that he demonstrated himself. And the reason he does this is for two interconnected reasons. One is preservation, as we see in verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, if the gospel is not fought for in every generation, you're always one generation away from losing it. Someone once said, if you assume the gospel in one generation, it will be lost in the next generation. In other words, for many of us here, we believe, we've come to trust the gospel, but sometimes we feel like, especially if we have children or we have friends, we say something like, well, you know, it's not my job to actually ram it down, my thro- ram down their throats. Now, if your method of trying to preach the gospel to your children is to ram it down their throats, that would be counterproductive. But you don't want to go to the other extreme and not be intentional about it. Why? Because the children... Though they are born to you, are not born again because they are born by you. The gospel needs to be fought for and preserved also in their generation. If we're not intentional about doing that and allow false messages to come, because believe this, whether you disciple them or not, someone will disciple them. And so we have to be intentional about how they're being discipled or else... It will not be preserved. And the second interconnected reason is because of liberty or freedom. What I mean by that. In verse 4, it says that these false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ to come and make us slaves. Now, these false believers were offering a kind of gospel 2.0, which was basically that Jesus plus circumcision equals enduring salvation. By that, they meant really that it's okay to have faith in Christ initially to get in, but for you to stay in, for you to really have true spirituality, you have to be circumcised. You have to be like a Jew. Paul said that this was the road to slavery. Why? You see, one way that people will falsify the gospel would always involve putting your trust in something else alongside Jesus Christ to give us the true freedom we want. So, for instance, Jesus plus suburban comfort, or Jesus plus a plush bank account, Jesus plus individualistic privacy, Jesus plus a successful romantic marriage, Jesus plus well-behaved children, we all equate that to mean liberty. And by liberty, I'm not just talking about freedom from something, that's one aspect of freedom, but the freedom from is really to achieve the freedom to something, right? And... 
The freedom to something we can define as the ability or the means to pursue a desired future, a desired goal. But you see, that ultimately def- depends on what we define as our ultimate desired future. If your ultimate desired future is something that can be attained in this world, you're going to have twofold, a, a problem that is twofold. One, it either el- eludes you, the second is that either it's unsatisfied or that it is unsatisfactory. What do I mean by that? If you try to pursue things in this world, quite often, as some of us know, maybe you've been looking for a very, very romantic partner, right? And right now you're probably looking at your wife or your husband and you're thinking, well, hurry up. Because you find that sometimes the thing that we want the most and we keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, we work our, I can't use that word, we work our backside to try to get it. Eventually, it eludes us. It just never comes. It's like a mirage. It's like chasing shadows. And the effect that that has to us, because we've defined our ultimate freedom with regards to that, is if it keeps eluding us, it leaves us absolutely crushed. Well, it could even be worse. It could be that you've defined something to be able to give you ultimate liberty, and now you've actually obtained that thing, and you realize that it is a little more than average. And what what is it when you actually realize your ultimate hope and desire, and it fails you? Well, it leads you to disillusionment. And Paul is saying, as long as you try to add something else to Jesus Christ, to kind of give him an upgrade, to give you ultimate freedom, ultimate liberty, the ultimate goal, that would always lead you to bondage. Because you put your faith in something else to be your savior. And every other savior apart from Jesus Christ would always lead us into slavery. See, the reason is because we are created with eternity in mind. We are created with eternal satisfaction in mind. And nothing in this world can actually bring us that. C.S. Lewis says that if a, cry, if a child is crying for, food, uh, for hunger, if a child is crying out of hunger, it's because they know that there's something like food. If a child is crying for, uh, out of thirst, it's because you know that there's something like drink. But that if you find in yourself a desire that cannot be met in this world, it is because you are created for another world. And God in Christ offers us that freedom now, but also promises us to give that to us when Christ returns. Every other alternative will bring us into slavery. And so there's a final point. The first point was gospel authentication for unity, and the second was gospel preservation for liberty. The third point is gospel demonstration for credibility. Now, if you look in the the next chapter, one of the things you'll see, I just want to reemphasize a point, that to be a Christian is to put your trust in Christ. First, the very first phase is you get a new status. What is this new status? Well, for one, if we see Galatians 3 verse 11, it is that we become just before God. 
Clearly, no one relies, who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous or the just will live by faith. That is, if God should measure you by his actual absolute standards, which you break all the time, if you put your trust in Christ, God accredits Christ's own status to you so that you would be as though you'd never broken any of God's commandments. You are just before God. Or you look in Galatians 3, 26, which says that so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You become a child of God through faith. Or you become part of the one diverse people of God through faith as well. Two verses after that, it says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ, presumably by faith. But what's this faith like? Is this just something that we believe? There is a doctrine. We understand it. It makes logical sense. If there is some form of coherence in it, and I can explain it. And therefore, it shows that I truly believe it. Well, James says that if you believe that there is one God, you've only passed the qualification to become a demon. The demons believe that there is one God, and they tremble. Because merely understanding is not enough. Full-blown trust means that you rest upon that belief. In other words, that belief will be evident through certain actions. None of us can see what true faith is. We can only read faith through works or actions. Now, don't get me wrong. The false teaching of the other guys was that faith plus a certain thing will give you that status. But there is another terrible teaching, which would be that faith alone that is an understanding of something, would give you that status. No, if that status is true, then it's demonstrated through certain actions. This is why we're giving the Spirit. Also, after we have faith, Galatians 3.14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The same Spirit that birthed the church is the Spirit that is given to all those who are Christians to live an empowered life that is Christ-like. See, it's not the way, the new way of the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, since we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit does not earn or keep our newly begotten status What does it do? It proves it. And case in point here is our attitude to the poor. Now, if you see in verse 10, it says that after Paul has been, um, after the, uh, the guys in Jerusalem had agreed that he should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised, verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now, this reference could be the Jerusalem church farming that we read in Acts 11, um, or the general principle that the poor, uh, of the poor among them. Well, whichever one that is, whether it's the poor among the church that Paul is in, or the Jerusalem church that they visited with arms, what cannot be mistaken is the special attention that is given to the poor. And it is striking, isn't it, that amidst this big theological debate, that both Paul... And the apostles, that is the one given to the circumcised and the one given to the uncircumcised, amidst this theological debate, they're both very eager for the treatment of the poor. 
They say that the poor should be remembered. You see, if the context should not change our gospel message, the different context should not change our gospel message, what we're seeing here, that those who God has sent to the circumcised and those who God has sent to the uncircumcised, neither should that change their attitude of compassion towards the poor. Because, you see, we're so prone to forget them. And if you may indulge me, let me say that in places like the Heights, we must be all too aware of this. Gentrified neighborhoods are somewhat designed to inoculate us from the suffering of others. Think about it. The coffee shops, the craft beer, the expensive restaurants, the concierge-managed apartments. You see, all of these things in some way are designed to not make us see the poor, to hide them or to marginalize them. And this creates, at best, a numbing in us, and at worst, causes us to negate the unjust experiences of the poor because we haven't received such unjust treatment. Especially if we take this sobering thought, that being part of one society means that the fortunes of some are often directly or indirectly linked to the misfortune of others. A friend of mine who is a pastor in a suburb of South Africa, Ross Lester, says this, and I think it does find parallels with um, uh, gentrified area churches as well. He says, suburban churches should be regularly disquieted by the ills in this world, and especially the ones that our suburban existences create and exacerbate. Our schools are good because there is inequitable spending on schools in other areas. Our neighborhoods are safe for us because they aren't safe for people who don't look like us. Our products are cheap and varied because people down the supply chain have been squeezed to below livable wages to get them to us. Our suburban life of comfort comes at a great cost to others. And you know, it's no, it, it's not, let me careful with this, but what I'm trying to say is that it's not just enough to say, well, we send money to them. I give money to this organization to help with the poor. Well, if you just give money, that is a way that we're trying to assuage our guilt. We will not interact with them, but we'll give money so that they can stay where they're staying. That is quite dehumanizing. And the purpose of what Paul is saying here is don't forget them. Now, I'm not saying this to embarrass us into some kind of false guilt. Far from it. If you're trying to assuage your guilt by giving to the poor, you're doing the same thing again. You're trying to earn salvation by doing something that Jesus, that makes Jesus basically insufficient. But what Paul and the apostle are very clear about is that our compassion towards the poor doesn't earn our salvation, but it mirrors the gospel that saves us. You see, our view and reaction to the poor, whether or not they are among us, and I understand that it's not in every context that you can have them congregate with you, just because of geographical realities. We do have that in my city as well. The poor have to be put outside of the main city because it's just going to be, I mean, it's just a reality. It's so expensive for them. But our reaction to the poor says a lot about how much we believe or have understood the gospel. What do I mean by that? 
Now, Paul, writing to another church, in trying to raise money for the famine that's going on in Jerusalem, shows how Christ and the poor and we are linked in the gospel. This is what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. If Paul is trying to show a unity through the gospel, that, and that that gospel, that precious, beautiful gospel must be preserved, but one of the ways it's going to be preserved is that those who that gospel has come to demonstrate that gospel, demonstrate the gospel to a watching world that gives that gospel also credibility. Gandhi is famous for saying that, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. And part of it is really because we, the Christians, don't always live like the Christ. In the gospel message, we see how Christ, who is God, descended to us human beings who are poor, we're united in our poverty and our need for him so that he can bless us with all spiritual riches with him in heavenly places. If we accept that, then he says, demonstrate the gospels working in your life by looking at those who don't have the same privilege as you. And in a society with increasing inequality, this behavior gives us a lot more credibility with those who will not believe like us and maybe perhaps they will give us a better hearing. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the challenges that it brings. But we thank you that the challenges are always there to make us better, to make us look more like Christ. We thank you for this precious gift of the gospel that we have. We thank you for how this gospel, unchanged, unimproved, unites us across different ethnic and social backgrounds, across different generations. And that this gospel, as you have preserved it for us through the faithfulness of others, is so important for us to preserve in our generation, both by understanding it clearly, but by demonstrating its power at work in us through the Holy Spirit. So we pray that as a church here, that we will take this thing out. We will consider what it says for us, particularly in our attitude towards those that do not have the same privileges as ours. We ask, Lord, that you therefore bless us and give us and empower us to do what is right. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.